This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fern Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Here again today with another episode of the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about surveys. This is the part two of a two-part series on title commitments and survey. And they really kind of work together because the title commitment essentially is the seller representing and the title commitment and title company confirming that the seller has the quality of title to present you with and, and uh, basically to deed you over via warranty deed the right title interest that you're you're buying that you think you're buying. Well, the title commitment, as you know from our last episode, tells you about some of the liens and other exceptions and concerns about the property and the condition of title. Well, the survey is really an enhancement of that. Surveys tell you the stuff that typically you can't figure out on your own. You need an you need an expert, and there there are really three levels of survey. I mean, the the base level of survey is just called a boundary survey, and this is basically you know a drawn on uh, whether it's a square, rectangle, or some polygon around the property, and it has a beginning and an ending, and it has to connect. You can't have you know like a Pac-Man shape with an open mouth. It's got to be enclosed, and the boundary has to has to close, and then a surveyor can write up a legal description. If it's in a neighborhood, it may be like a platted lot where it's pretty simple, but typically in a mobile home park, there's going to be you know a, more of a unique uh, legal description, meets and bounds, directions, degrees, the kind of stuff you need a surveyor to uh, look at for you. And a surveyor is required to make an on-site inspection, and these guys are licensed by this, this particular state. And they will go look at where the survey stakes are or the markers or the pins that are in the earth. And these, you know, this is like Lewis and Clark style back in the day where they're actually nailing in a, a rod into the earth and that's going to be there forever. And they'll locate the old pins. If they can't find them, they'll put a new pin in and they'll draw up a pretty picture. Um, boundary surveys are your cheapest of the three options. Typically, this will cost like 1000 to $2,500. Obviously, the cost is going to depend on where you're at, like I'm looking at a deal right now in middle of nowhere, Nebraska. Well, it's gonna be a little more expensive because there's not as many, not as much competition, and the surveyor has to drive further. Um, but it's, it could be, in some degrees, cheaper because it's a smaller town versus like here in Kansas City, the you know big higher pricing across the board than in a smaller town. But in Kansas City, there's more competition. But that boundary survey is gonna be your your, your cheapest option, and sometimes that's good enough. But typically, I like to go a step higher, and I like to get the base ALTA survey. And the base ALTA survey, ALTA is the American Land Title Association. This is a higher quality of survey because the licensed surveyor has some more representations and warranties, if you will. I mean, basically more due diligence he has to, he or she has to do when, when signing off. And a surveyor, you can find a survey company. Typically, I get three to four bids in a municipality for the cost of these things but sometimes surveyors are they work under an architect or an engineer but they can also work under their own uh, their own shingle their own license but they sign off on these things so in addition to getting a pdf of their final work product i always ask for a physical copy of like plotter size i can obviously print the pdf on eight and a half by eleven but i want the big one the you know two feet by three feet or whatever whatever the dimensions are i think it's like 25 by 36 and then I can, and it's in color, and it's got their signature and their seal stamped on it. 
and that's nice to just pull out on a desk once in a while and really just look and think about it, especially as you get into the phase three, which is the full is an Alta survey with additional table A items. And that's going to be the, the crux of today's issue is going through what those table A items are and, and why you need them. But always request a hard copy. If you do it at the beginning, they won't charge you. It'll be part of their bid. But if you do it later, they'll say, oh, I need another $100 to print you a copy. And it's annoying. Um, and even more importantly, it's important to get a copy of the AutoCAD file. And this is basically like a kind of computer program that shows all the survey stuff uh, you need. It's like a .dwg file, which you probably won't have the software to even open it, but it's good in case you have to use it later. So I, I have one park I'm under contract for and another park I bought about a year and a half ago that both have development potential. Well, right now, I'm getting bids for the civil engineering to expand. I've got a it's about an 88-unit park. But I, th I think I can get it over 100. And as those of you in the business know, once you get over 100, it's, it attracts a lot more institutional buyers. So that's going to be, I'll get a premium value add if I can get this over 100. And I think I can pull it off of the municipality because it's in county unincorporated grounds. So it's there's not very much in the zoning code to make development onerous. But I want to see if it, I can get to 100. I want, so I want the layout. I want the civil engineering to draw it out and give me bids for the cost of construction because development is not cheap, and this is not a $400 lot rent market. This is a $220 lot rent market, so it's going to be a lot harder hurdle for me to determine if, if the juice is worth the squeeze, if you, so to speak, economically. But what's good for me is I hired civil engineering firm A to do the original Alta survey, but I negotiated for this AutoCAD file. Now I can get the civil engineering work bid out from numerous firms. But if I didn't have the AutoCAD file, the second company would say, well, we, we're not going to start you know, from scratch. We need to start from a survey. Well, they, they want to start from the AutoCAD version. So as a result, I have, have ownership rights to that file. I can more easily get competing bids for phase two, which in this case is development. And even if you don't do a phase two, it doesn't hurt to ask for the AutoCAD file. They'll typically give it to you for free if you ask at the beginning. If you ask later, they're going to have you over a barrel. And one of the companies that was involved in this basically tried to do that. And I reminded them of the executed scope of work for the first engagement and said, no, I need that file. And I, need, and I have the right to share it and bid, bid out phase two against you. And you know I'm not I'm not trying to like be disloyal here, but at the same time I'm not trying I don't want to get taken advantage of. Or sometimes engineering firms will give you a sweetheart bid on a project like this on development because they're like, okay, we'll we'll do a loss leader on the survey, but then we're going to have them over a barrel when it comes time for the civil, and then we're going to get all the civil work, which is going to be twenty five or thirty thousand dollars. And then they get the construction management work. If it's a three hundred thousand dollar development, they're going to take fifteen percent on top of that, and they're just, they're basically betting for the future. But by me getting the AutoCAD file up front. I've neutered that possibility. They still may win the bid, but they got to go at it honest. Okay, with that all said, we're going to dive into the most advanced type of survey, which is the Alta Survey Table A. And I'm going to give you my advice and opinion on whether or not you need any of these items. And it's going to depend on the property, so I'll try to go through that. So the first item on Table A is going to be, they're numbered, number one. Monuments placed or a reference monument or witness to the corner at all major corners of the boundary of the property, unless already marked or referenced by existing monuments or witnesses in close proximity to the corner. This is always a yes, because the base Alta survey, the survey is required to give you these first four. So number one, yes, you, you check that box. 
And then as you'll go through here, when you get bids from surveyors, you wanted to get an apples and apples bids. So you got to give figure out the scope work you need, which is easier done after you have your title commitment and after you've seen the property. And then you get you send out your scope of work to different bids so you get the apples and apples price. And every every time you check the box, this thing gets more expensive. So I, I think I mentioned the, the basic boundary surveys anywhere from like 1500 to 3000 the Alta survey is going to be more expensive than that. So I, I've got a deal going right now in Nebraska. I think the boundary was 1200 bucks, So it was on the low end. And, you know, all told, there are 20, uh, which is actually pretty reasonable. Um, and then the full Alta, the full, I checked, I'll rattle off if I've got it handy here, the, the number of boxes. I checked off 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 A, 6 B, 8, 9, 11, 16, 18, 19, 20, and that was six thousand dollars. So that's a lot of boxes I checked. So six thousand was pretty good. The survey I'm looking at in front of me is different. This is for a deal in the past. This one was in a property in Illinois, and it had some hair on it with some utility lines and things like that. This was like an eleven thousand dollar table A Alta survey, and it was pretty much those same check boxes. Those are kind of my go to as modified by a site visit and they'll make more sense when i go through them so number one always check it number two is the addresses of the surveyed property if disclosed in the documents provided that's always yes basically the surveyor they don't get started until you give them the title commitment so they're going to basically cheat and they're going to piggyback on the title commitment and if the title commitment has an address they're going to put it on there and they're required to but sometimes sometimes there's not an address it's just like bob's farm in olathe kansas and they, okay, now that's why we're hiring a surveyor, frankly. But they're not going to put that on there unless they can find out a real address. Number three is the flood zone classification with proper annotation based on federal flood insurance rate maps or the state or local equivalent depicted by scaled map location and graphic plotting only. Yeah, you want to know where the flood, if this is in a flood zone. And your lender is going to likely ask that. Um, you, you may not be able to tell just with the human eye if this is in a flood zone. So it's important to check that box. And, and the, generally, there's not much cost for doing that. And number four is the gross land area. They, this isn't that much work for them either because they're already marking all the four corners of the property. And I say four corners as if it's a square, but I'm talking four corners, all sides, all shapes of the polygon. So they've already marked it, so now their computer program just tells them how big it is. So that's an easy yes, checkbox for tell you how big it is, which is important in MHP world because sometimes you have a density per acre. Like if you've got a mobile home park that's five units per acre, that's that's not dense at all, not going to be a problem. If you get up to like 12, 15, 18, 20 units per acre, that could impact your ability to sell down the road, impact some agency financing, and it could it makes it you know indirectly, but it could impact based on the setback allowances, your ability to bring in newer used homes in accordance with the city city code of ordinances or city municipal code. So it's, it's always good to have the land area. It's pretty easy. Number five, this is kind of, an, I say it depends, but I usually check it. It's But it, it goes on price. A lot of times I'll buy just the base alta, one through four, I stop. And then I, if I have other reasons or other problems down the road, I can enhance this, especially if I've already got that AutoCAD file. Sometimes I'll do just the boundary survey. Typically, you should do at least that because the boundary will show you, you know, in relation and in coordination with the title, if the person owns what they say they're owning. If they say, oh, yeah, that road, the entry road, that's on my property. Okay, well, let's prove it. If the survey shows that's outside the property or if the survey shows there's an easement and, and neighbor, neighbor John 
has rights to use that road. Okay, you need to know that. And then you should look into things, you know, deeper in the weeds is who has maintenance obligations of that road? You know, what if they stop using the road? Can I put a fence in front of the road? Um, and that stuff gets, that stuff will come up either in your title work or in your title exceptions or in your survey. So these items are all important to review in concert together. But number five is vertical relief with the source of information. For example, the ground survey, aerial map, contour interval, datum, and original benchmark identified. Uh, this is kind of like your top- topographical stuff. You know, what's the, you know, and this is, I, I feel like the times this can be helpful with the floodplain, but this is one that it's, the more, if you have potential development, this is more important. If you've got a park that's, you know, full, fully occupied and it's pretty plain Jane, this is less important. Uh, number 6A, if set forth in a zoning report or letter provided to the surveyor by the client, list the current zoning classification, setback requirements, height and floor space area, restrictions and parking requirements. So, this is pretty easy for the surveyor because they're not going to do anything with this unless you give them a zoning letter and or give them a zoning report. But if they do, they'll put it on the document. So if you get a big, nice surveyor, it's nice to have lots of information in one place and, this, and have this all on the survey. 6B, so I typically check that. If I'm going to, and I always get this, I always get a zoning letter, but if I get the more enhanced survey beyond the top four table A items, I'll, I'll check 6A and I'll check 6B. Which 6B is if the zoning setback requirements are set forth in a zoning report or letter provided to the surveyor, and if those requirements do not require an interpretation by the surveyor, graphically depict the building setback requirements. Identify the date and source of the report. So this is them actually showing uh, where the setbacks are uh, on your map. So that's kind of cool. Item 7, exterior dimensions of all buildings at ground level. When I used to, you know, retail redevelopment, this was more important. But frankly, in mobile home parks, buildings are not going to count mobile homes typically. Um, so the surveyor's not going to do the mobile homes. It's going to be like an extra add-on, even beyond this number seven. So if there's a, I don't, I typically don't need it. You know, if there's a, like I got a duplex building that's like an old laundromat and community center in one park. I got some abandoned garages and stuff. Sometimes, sometimes there's a site-built house, but. In my opinion, on mobile home parks, that's less important. You can then check 7B if you like, you know, square footage of the exterior footprint or other areas. 7C is the height of the buildings. That's more important if you're, you know, you're, if, the, if the height is going to come into play. Like I was pursuing at one point, a, like an old Bank of America building, and we were debating buying it. It was really crappy. Buying it, demoing it, and putting it in a hotel. Well, then we wanted, but you have, we had a grandfather issue with we can't go higher than the current building. Well, we, we needed to know how tall the current building was. So you want to get a surveyor to do that, then to figure out if a hotel was feasible. But in MHP world, I rarely check that box. Okay, number eight, substantial features observed in the process of conducting the field work. I checked this. It's like, hey, surveyor, if you see anything substantial, write it down. Things like parking lots, billboards, signs, swimming pools, landscape areas, uh, substantial areas of refuse, you know, Put that on the map. And I say map. Put on the survey. Draw the picture of it for me. Draw the location. Number nine is the number and type of clearly identifiable parking spaces on surface parking areas, lots, and in parking structures. Sometimes in MHP world, this is not as, as important, but I like to have it. I mean, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna spend the money on the table A with a bunch of these enhancements. I might as well have that guy out there counting them, and I'll have it in there for forever, which lets me kind of gives me a better uh, vision of the total project for when I'm bringing in new homes or if I've got a density issue. And then you can then see it visually, and you may be able to make some alternative plans or modifications. So that's table A, item number nine. Next, number 10, 
as designated by the client, a determination of the relationship and location of certain division or party walls with respect to adjoining properties. That's pretty much irrelevant in MHP world. A party wall would be like, you know, we had a like a Ross clothing store and a Marshall's clothing store, and they were in one strip center, but there was a party wall between them and it had to be fire rated and heavier duty. You want to know that boundary. That's like almost like condominiumization within a real estate parcel. I don't think I've ever checked it on an MHP, frankly. And then same thing as 10B is determination if the walls are plumb. You know, plumb meaning basically perfectly straight up and down. And again, not really relevant for this asset class. Um, number 11, location of utilities existing on or serving the surveyed property as determined by a observed evidence collected pursuant to Section 5, evidence from plans requested by the surveyor and obtained from utility companies or provided by client, markings requested by the surveyor pursuant to an 811 utility locator similar request. This goes on to talk about some representative examples of utilities, such as manhole covers, wires and cables, utility company company installations, etc. So this is one, this is one of the more important ones, location utilities, and it's one of those, it depends based on your site inspection. So the base Alta survey, one of the best things about that is the surveyor is going to include the locations of the easements. So I think on the last podcast I talked about if the easement for the gas company is something that is in crystal clear English, like the 10 easternmost feet of the property along Main Street, well, you know that that's where the gas lines are allowed to be. Whereas sometimes it'll say something like blanket easement or it'll have a big complicated legal description and the easements can, the gas lines can be anywhere. Well, if the actual gas lines can be anywhere, well, you need to know more than the easement. You need to know where they are. And the guys come out there with a tool, I think it's called a gigameter, and they basically, it's like a metal detector, and they identify where the actual lines are. This gets expensive. Now, this, this number 11 is probably one of the more expensive things as an add-on cost. But sometimes it's absolutely vital. So I had a property in Illinois one time where I, I had to pay for this thing. And I got the location of the easements, but the easements didn't give me what I, exactly what I needed. So I went and got the location of the lines. Well, as it turns out, the utility company, which was the gas and the electric company, they had put the gas lines in what appeared to me by the human eye to be in the wrong spot, like basically a shortcut. So normally the lines, if it goes down like the alley between the, two, the back of the two homes, and it would be, you know, run north-south and then would jut to the west to service the home and then jut immediately back east and then north and then west and then east and then north. But that's not as efficient as going just at a 45-degree angle to the house and then straight north to the next house and then jumping back in the easement when it's convenient. But I had interest in bringing in like 30 homes in this park, and if there were gas lines in the middle, that was going to be a big problem. So I ended up getting out there with the surveyor, with, the, with some city officials, with, the, you know, with Ameren, the utility company, and with the big map in my hands and the easements in my hands, and I said, I don't think you guys did this right. And they went round and round and argued, but eventually... I think everybody kind of agreed that, yeah, we were kind of aggressive in the line placement. They're, they're in spots that they probably shouldn't be, but it's okay. And I said, well, I'm going to bring homes in. And then the city said, you can't put them right there. Well, the utility company said, well, then we're gonna, we are going to require you to move the lines and upgrade the lines. To which I said, the hell you are. It's like $105,000. I said, that's your problem. They go, no, it's your problem. And I said, you guys are illegally in the, in the location of the current lines as opposed to legally in the location you're supposed to be. 
And they just kind of bluffed at me and said, well, if, if you make a stink of it, we're just going to cut off service to your park. And uh, we'll tell all your tenants. I go, really? You're going to cut off heat to a bunch of lower-income families? And, you know, this was this was summer, but are you going to let them freeze to death this winter? I said, and what happens if one of these lots that currently has a, a gas line underneath the home, what happens if one of those gas lines has a leak and it blows up? It's going to kill the entire family above that. I said, that's bad news for me. It's really bad news for the family, but it's also really bad news for Amron because you're going to be on Channel 9, and you got the deep pockets, and, you're, and I'm going to have of record here. So this is the kind of stuff that I, I put on my lawyer hat, and I send him a written notice. Like, you are on notice that your lines are in an illegal location, and this could result in great danger and harm. Well, long story short, they caved, and they put in new gas lines. So this one was like a triple whammy for me because I got to, at the time, I, I got to go back to the seller and say, there's a major infrastructure problem. I need a price concession. But then I ended up dropping the contract because the utility company was, it was taking too long. My due diligence was running out. So I dropped the contract. Well, the seller came back to me after two or three more people dropped the contract. And they ended up offering me an opportunity to buy it again. They're like, you put a lot of work into this. What's your price? My new price was several hundred thousand dollars cheaper. I said, I closed cash in 15 days or 10 days. Because I knew since the time I had dropped the contract until this, this new date and time, the utility company had gotten back to me and they had caved. So I now knew that my problem was not as big a problem because the utility company was going to pay for it. So I got paid once in the sense of price reduction. I got paid twice in the sense that utility company had to eat this cost. But then I sold the park about two years later, and I was able to represent to the new buyer, look, I've got upgraded gas lines throughout the community. And I had, I had done upgraded roads and submetered water or some other, ta- some other bigger projects. But I was able to say, look, you have a good infrastructure. So I got paid a premium and got paid a third time for the same work. And, I, and the only reason I was able to pull that off was because I, I used all these skills in tandem of the title commitment combined with looking at the easements and the easement exceptions and then as drawn out by an expert surveyor, yeah, which in this case I needed that table A item 11. And I was able to, you know, this was a six-figure move or most people are just going to miss this or not object to this and then and you don't want to find out you got an easement problem or a line problem the day you're trying to bring in your first home or even worse after you've ordered your first 15 homes and they all show up and you can't put them somewhere so anyway table a number 11 has been been good to me but it is more expensive to get it uh, next up table a item number 12 as specified by the client governmental agency survey related requirements for example, HUD surveys, surveys for leases on Bureau of Land Management lands, etc. I don't think I've ever done that one, to be honest. Check number 12. Number 13, names of adjoining owners according to tax records. This is this is pretty easy. If you want to have, you know, John Smith is next door, if you want the surveyor to put that on there, check that box. You can pull this up fairly easily yourself. I sometimes don't even put it on there because it just clouds, clouds the document with more black ink. When you talk, when you get that utility one, it shows every electrical pedestal, every gas pedestal, every sewer clean out, every you know, all kinds of stuff. It's it gets to be super busy. Sometimes I just don't check this because I don't really care who's next door. Um, now, if, if it's like a if there's a recorded easement affecting that, then I do, which is not does not really happen much in MHP. Now I have heard stories of the railroad company has an easement to use this portion of the ground. People, you know these. You know, sold the road. I bought a park one time where there was a second access road that I didn't even know existed, and the current builder owner did not build the road. But it didn't, at the moment, negatively impact me. But it was something of potential impact. So 
sometimes you want to know your you want to know the adjacent owner's names, in particular if they have rights. Number fourteen, as specified by the client, distance to the nearest intersecting street. I typically don't check number fourteen. Um, it's not really that's not really a setback issue. That would probably be an issue if you were like I had I bought a park one time and the the previous guy had to put in two fire hydrants and they were super expensive, like four hundred thousand dollars to run the city water main and pipe water for fire safety throughout the park. So I've never I don't think I've ever paid for number fourteen to be honest. Number fifteen, rectified orthophotography, photogrammetric photo grammetric mapping, remote sensing, airborne mobile laser scanning, other similar projects. I've never done this one either. Um, and I originally got my input, my license, or my, my list here, and I got my explanation of these, not even in law school, but I had a guy that worked with us who was an in-house construction manager and civil engineer, and he walked me through all these, and he's just like, you don't need that. I was like, okay. So to be honest, I haven't really dug into that one. I just have never, never checked it. Number 16, evidence of recent earth-moving work, building construction, or building additions observed in the process of conducting the field work. I typically do check that because if the surveyor's out there, it's not that much harder for them to look around. And, and frankly, I would notice some of this too. But one time I found a, um, and the seller had, had to ex- dis- disclose this, so I didn't really find it, but I would have I found it, I guess, if I was the surveyor, and it was a well on the property where I had, I thought I was buying city water, city sewer. Well, it turned out that it used to be a well system. So that's something that came up in my phase one environmental also, and I was required to close the well with a licensed well driller or well closer. 16 is a pretty easy one to just check. Uh, number 17, proposed changes in street right-of-way lines, if such information is made available to surveyor or controlling jurisdiction. Uh, and then evidence of recent street or sidewalk construction or repairs observed in the process. It didn't really come up much, honestly, in MHP world, so that, I don't really have strong feelings either way about number 17. I typically don't check it. Number 18, if there has been a field delineation of wetlands conducted by a qualified specialist hired by the client, the surveyor shall locate any delineation markers observed in the process of conducting the field work and show them on the face of the plat or map. This is, I mean, I would typically say I would want the surveyor to, to do the wetlands thing, to, to disclose them, but it's really you have to give them some other information. So sometimes I check it, but the surveyor doesn't really do much about it unless there's another report. So this, that one's typically not as big a deal. Number 19, any, include any plottable offsite, i.e. appurtenant easements or servitudes disclosed in documents provided to or obtained by the surveyor as part of the survey pursuant to sections 5 and 6. I, I do like checking this one. This would be an easement that would not show up on the four corners of the real estate that you're buying but that impacts it you know things like an access easement from the guy next door so this is important and the surveyors will work a little harder to look for those sort of things number 20 is professional liability insurance obtained by the surveyor in the minimum amount of blank typically it's a million or two million of insurance that the surveyor carries if you're buying a 50 million dollar piece of property you may want to ask for more insurance here but it's just going to be you paying additional premium to their general liability provider so I, most people don't pay for that. I think if there was a concern about something, then it might make sense. But basically, if, if the surveyor screws up and they put their seal on this, you can sue them for their malpractice or you can go after their license. So um, some of that's subjective as well. So overall, on these Table A items, as you know, as you can tell, there's a lot of different areas here. Uh, I like to have the seller pay for the survey. I say hey, it's part of what you're representing. If you're representing you on the land, then you should at least pay for the boundary survey and ideally the, the base alta survey too. Any of those table A items, those are more of the buyer's supplemental costs, kind of like title endorsements. Uh, sometimes you got old man seller, he just won't pay for survey. 
then sometimes I'll suck it up and pay for it. Um, it's recommended that you do get at least a boundary survey with every property you purchase. Um, some people don't do it. I mean, it's it's uh, frankly, it's not as big a deal as not getting a phase one, but it can be. So you might as well get the boundary survey. The table A items, sometimes your lender, especially if you have a agency loan like Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae, or some conduit CMBS lender, they're going to have certain requirements there as well. So you want to be ahead of the game. Another quick tactic is to ask the seller in your contract or require the seller to give you copies of any surveys they have. Because a lot of times they'll have a survey, even if they don't remember it, they'll have a survey from like 20 years ago. And if it was by Jones and Company, well, maybe Jones and Company still in business and they've already got a head start on everybody else. They're going to, be, they're going to likely be your cheapest bid. Or you could at least get the paper copy and you can use it. And then if it, it might even be good enough that you just need to get it updated. Or it might even be good enough that you don't even need to get a new survey. Um, but overall, um, surveys can get pretty complex. Uh, I think you just want to make sure you first look at your title work. You do a site visit. And based on that site visit, you may determine things like, man, these lots are really close together. Or these homes are really close together. I might need some of these other items that set forth buildings or carports or garages or setbacks. But sometimes you may say, no, this is pretty obvious. Like I was on site with a client, I don't know, two or three months ago. And they're like, do you think we need to have the survey measure the locations of the exact mobile homes? And I said, no, because I could tell, I didn't have to get a tape measure out. I could tell that the homes were like 100 feet apart. And based on the current zoning of the city, it was like 20-foot interior setbacks. So 20 plus 20 is 40. Visibly, these were way more than 40. If he brought in new homes, he wasn't going to be bringing in homes that much bigger than the current 14 and 16 by wides, um, at least in that direction, in the, the width. So in that example, it wasn't really necessary. I've got another park that, that I own that is very dense, and some of the homes are like yeah, 10 to 15 feet apart. And the setbacks were 10 feet. So if I pull out a home, pull out two homes and throw them away because these are really old, crappy homes, I may want to bring in one, two, three houses, but I may need to cobble up three lots to turn into two. So the current locations of the homes and the setbacks were more important there. And then if you got a project where you're bringing in a lot of infill, that makes the, frankly, that makes the locations of the gas lines and water lines and things like that more important to know. Um, of note on the water sewer lines, a lot of times those were installed privately, so they're not of record, so the surveyor is not even going to locate them. So that's kind of sucks, but it's, you know, it's not as big a deal to hit a gas line, excuse me, to hit a water line or to hit a sewer line. It can be a mess, but it's generally not that dangerous. If you hit an electrical line or you hit a gas line, you're going to die. So you definitely want to make sure you survey if you're going to be putting homes over, over potential gas lines, electric lines. And those are typically of record because those aren't privately installed. They're usually provided by a government or quasi-government utility provider. And it's just, um, you know, kind of core for, par for the course is looking into those things. And if you're putting in new homes, you have to do HUD sets and the concrete installer and the mobile home installer. Those guys are going to have licensure and, and risk as well. So they're going to typically call the dig right folks or the, whatever the state they call them, but the people you call before you dig and those people will help out as well. But the surveyors is uh, is a key part of the team. Um, and then really reviewing title and survey. These are some of the landmines that you want to avoid in your due diligence. And sometimes surveys can be expensive, but if you put them in your budget, you you know, you really got to just put them in your budget and uh, it's kind of the cost of doing business to keep from making a big mistake. So anyway, Lots of detailed stuff to cover today. Hope uh, you learned a lot. 
Look forward to talking to you next time. You can check out in the show notes the I'll have a copy of this minimum standard detail requirements for Alta and SPS land title surveys. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.